HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member today. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from Hometown Barbecue in Industry City in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. It is Monday, December 16th, 2019. This is the 237th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. And we will also be broadcasting this show on Heritage Radio on this Wednesday, December 18th at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, my usual time slot. Today, my guest is a notable chef and restaurateur known as the Dissident Chef, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to embrace adventure. Live in the moment, evolve daily, and go with the flow, allowing life surprises to unfold. Sure, we can all have general plans, but being too structured only limits ourselves. So instead, Let's be flexible and willing to try new things, as it will set us up for joy beyond everyday expectations. Yes, an attitude for adventure is the way to go. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really excited to be here with my guest, who is crossing worlds with me, being coming on my show, and he's also a client of mine with Bayer Public Relations. It is chef and owner Russell Jackson of Subculture Dining and Reverence, his first New York City restaurant that he recently debuted in Harlem and is one of his most personal experiences. Russell previ previously owned Lafitte in San Francisco and Russell's in Los Angeles. He is the host and creator of Pop Foods TV and has made notable TV appearances including SF Chefs, Iron Chef America, Food Network star, and off the menu. Without further ado, 
Welcome to the show, Russell. As, as I'll start off by saying, this was your bad idea. But... <laughs> this is my this is my terrific idea. Here we are in Industry City doing a live show. Thank you all for coming out. This is my first ah, time in front of a live audience, so um, it's very exciting, and I'm awesome. I'm thrilled to have you as my guest. Yeah, it's really nice. You know, we always have great conversations, so it's just having another conversation. It's all good. Yes, it's all good. So I always like to start out with my guests of their background and how they got into what they're doing. So what inspired you to cook and become a chef? Uh, you know, this, as the story goes, I've been cooking since I could walk. And uh, there's a story that we always tell about me being three years old and deciding to cook breakfast for my sister. And this is, of course, in the 60s on a gas stove, match lit, of course, and uh, eventually blah, 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 blowing up the kitchen. Um, and enjoying it. And again, not much in 36 years of professional cooking has changed. I nightly blow something up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's been a massive evolutionary process for me. It, it is, this is who I am. I cook for people. I serve people. That's what I do. Uh, and it's taken, it's taken a long road and a long process to get to that comfortable place uh, that I'm very happy about. So you're, you're from the West Coast. Originally born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, resided in San Francisco for about uh, 15, 17 years. Uh, but yes, this is home. And what was your experience like? You had restaurant in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, and also, and I didn't mention your underground supper club. I don't know what you're talking about there. I don't know either. Are we allowed to talk about that? There's, it there's is lots underground. Lots of possible deniability. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I kind of outed myself out on national television on that one. So, that, yeah, that, that went <laughs> out the door. Um, yeah, you know, uh, this is my, uh, Reverence is my, uh, technically my third bricks and mortar restaurant. And I've done other projects. This is my seventh overall that I've done. Um, uh, and each one of them have been pieces of me and ideas that, that, that have been near and dear to my heart. Um, reverence is sort of the culmination of my entire career in my life. So um, it's a, as I've said before, it's a very personal piece. So when you were in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. you also spent time as a private chef. I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, in Los Angeles, I worked privately. I worked for quite a few celebrities and just some really nice people. And as well in San Francisco, I uh, worked for several Fortune 50 CEOs. Uh, it's a very different side of life. It's a very different, uh, um, very humbling uh, uh, experience that you have to go through. And you truly learn that um, there's a difference of service and, and um, uh, the standpoint of doing something for someone else and being at someone else's beck and call. It's, it definitely has, it's, it's, um, it definitely has its place. Uh, and it's, it's something that I think a lot of people think is, uh, fun to do. It's not. <laughs> it's, How many years were you private chefing? Uh, on and off. I think I did it pretty much throughout my entire career. Uh, I stopped private chefing, uh, in, officially, in uh, uh, 2002 and or 2003, and I haven't looked back since. Um, again, it's 
for me, and, and I'd almost stopped doing it when the last clients that I had in Southern California were the Counting Crows, and they sort of... Oh, them. Yeah, well, <laughs> and before that, it was Nicolas Cage and his wife. Oh, and, I didn't even uh, know that one. Yeah, and they, they, were, they were... That was a very interesting family dynamic and, and uh, a very interesting situation uh, that I can't necessarily say that I enjoyed. Um, it, it had a lot of ups and downs. Um, uh, the, the working for the crows sort of brought me back to that place of, I could continue to do this for a while, uh, because they were such an interesting and unique experience for me and to be around them as artists and be there for their recording process was, um, was absolutely brilliant. And I, I'm, I've been raised around recording artists. I was married to a recording artist. Uh, so I was very comfortable in that world. Um, moving north and then picking it, picking up doing private work again, uh, uh, I kind of fell into it. I moved to moved from Los Angeles uh, to run the Black Cat in San Francisco, uh, which was a James Beard nomination uh, restaurant. And uh, we, we were doing some really cool work there. I left there uh, and ended up going back into private work. And originally the, the company that I was under said, hey, look, you know, we've got this great family. They'd like you to build a kitchen. I said, okay, sure. And I went in and I designed this kitchen for this, for this family. And at the end of it, they said, well, you really built the kitchen for yourself. Here's what we'll pay you. And uh, I'd never quite seen a number that big for my own personal payroll before and I was happy to say yes. So I did it initially for the money <laughs> and okay. I quickly learned that it was really a, not about the money but it was about uh, being a grounding force for this family in their life and um, uh, giving them a level of, and a sense of stability uh, so that they could go out and lead the lives that they led and again, another really f very interesting family dynamic. You know, when you get, when you have clients that have that much money, the world becomes very, very different, not just for them, but for you. And you need things that help you stay on, on earth and not in a really weird place, which can happen very easily. So, um, uh, but yeah, the last client that I worked for had 21 homes. I designed dozens of kitchens with a average budget budget of between one and four million dollars just for my kitchen alone um uh, i i spent over 300 days a year on the road uh i i i don't think i saw a commercial airplane for for almost a year and a half it was really really weird very surreal <laughs> and and it took Sounds it. it took and it was not it really i you know it, it, I woke up from it and realized that it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. It wasn't who I wanted to be as much as I think that I was needed for that family. And I seriously, in hindsight and looking back at where they are today and what, that I was truly needed, you know, to be that grounding force for that family. Um, uh, it, it, it had to end for me. So yeah. I went back and then that kind of led down the path to, Lafitte, and ultimately Subculture Dining. Yeah, I was going to ask what prompted you to start Subculture Dining, which is, was your, or is your, yeah. underground supper club. Yeah, again, we don't know, I don't know what you're talking which about. Which we're not talking yeah, about. don't know what you're talking off about. Off the there. air. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, so I, when I closed my 
original restaurant in Los Angeles in, in uh, 95. Uh, I swore up and down in the press that I would never open another restaurant. And uh, the LA Times decided, hey, you know, let's keep tabs on the guy. So <laughs> what ended up happening was um, I publicly made an announcement that I was going to build another restaurant in San Francisco. And the LA Times came knocking on the door. And they said, can we write a story about what you're doing? And I said, sure. You know, and I figured it'd be, you know, a couple phone calls maybe and some notes and it'd end up at the back page of a Thursday section or something. And in reality, it was over a year long interview process and it ended up being the largest story ever written about a chef in LA Times history. Um, I don't know if I still hold that record, but what year yeah. was this? This was, uh, uh, oh, uh, around uh, 2004. Okay. 2004, 2005, 2004, I think. And eight pages. It was in the LA magazine, which uh, doesn't exist any longer. Um, it was, and it was a, it was a very interesting article just about sort of my life and my time, the, the times of things that I'd been through in Los Angeles and what brought me to this process of, of, venturing out to build another restaurant, but this time on a bigger stage in San Francisco at the time, because, you know, even LA kind of capitulated to the fact that they, that San Francisco was the defining edge of, of cuisine, which they no longer hold. Um, so, <laughs> but, For another show. Yeah. That's a whole nother, get, or that's a whole would, nother or fight. We, or we might get to that. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I, uh, uh, going through the process, the writer asked me what my thoughts were about unconventional dining about underground restaurants. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I have all the equipment, all the technology, the entire ability to be able to whip this together. And 30 days later, uh, some subculture dining was born. And it, its mandate was to give us a template and, and a process to prepare ourselves for the eventuality of what was Lafitte and to entertain potential landlords and raise money and everything else. And through that, I was able to accomplish all of that uh, I would never do that again. Um, it was hand-to-hand -hand combat for, for six years. Uh, and it was a painful process, but we, you know, again, we accomplished the goal. Um, and, at, and you developed a, a following very quickly. We had over 30,000 people on an email list that were yeah. pretty, you know, feverish diners um, and, and loyal followers. Um, we had a staff, I had a staff of over 30 at that point walking into my restaurant, um, which was really, you know, it, it allowed us to create a culture and a philosophy that we wanted to start out with and, and, and to start in a different kind of way. Um, and I think that we were able to achieve that to a certain extent, um, the th knowing now better how I would approach, if I took that approach, I know definitively the things that I would do differently uh, to, to keep that, I that idea and that philosophy and that culture within the organization the same. Uh, I think that that was potentially one of the larger downfalls to us not, to Lafitte no longer existing, so. Okay. Yeah. So, so what led you to move to New York and you, you brought your subculture dining with you i don't know what you're talking about which we're not talking about yeah but why why you're a west coast chef you're now an east coast chef what what led you here <laughs> i don't know am i officially an east coast chef well I mean, I'm how long have you my, been here you've been here now my five stripes. years yeah i'm earning my stripes i mean i i know we could call you by coastal if you want no I, god <laughs> knows no 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 I, you know it, it's um 
I, I moved to New York at the request of um, the, the, the agency that I was signed to and ultimately by the network that I was working with. Uh, they wanted me here closer to home base to be able to go out and work if, if at their beck and call. And of course, I came and like 30 days later, <laughs> my contract was over uh, and I didn't get re-signed and, and that's really okay. And, but my family's from here. Uh, when I showed up here, it made sense. Uh, I am, I think, and always have been uh, a New Yorker as much as I am a Californian, as much as I'm a Los Angelino. I, 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 I'm, I think I'm still vaguely a San Franciscan, but I'm still staunchly from L.A. Um, and just the good parts. Not, yeah. <laughs> not the really douchey parts. So, uh, yeah, you know, I... I I love being here. I feel comfortable in my skin here. It makes sense for me. It allows me to lead the lifestyle that I that that I want to lead here. Um, uh, I love the fact that I don't own a car any longer, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, and my family's now here. I'm growing a family. The th one of the things that I think that I always wanted in my entire life that I struggled with, uh, I now have a awesome wife and a really cool son so i uh, you know very very adorable yeah cute he, little son he's a good kid he's a good kid daddy loves you boy so <laughs> so you made your home in harlem yeah and you recently opened your personal project restaurant in harlem as well uh so why don't you talk about that well okay so um and i get i get the question every night People ask me, you know, why did you come to Harlem? And I, and I honestly, I say, that I came to Harlem because of my wife, uh, who at the time was my girlfriend. She's from Bulgaria, but she lived on 138th Street. And uh, uh, when my lease ended where I was living, she said, just move in with me. And I said, man, what the hell, why not? And um, coming from Southern California, growing up in a beach community, in an affluent beach community that... I mean, I could never afford to get, well, I shouldn't say that, knock on wood, um, that is very, very expensive now. It's outrageously expensive. The home that I grew up in is now valued at over $10 million, uh, just sold on the market again, which is crazy to me. I think my dad paid $500,000, $600,000 for the house when, it, when we originally moved in in the 70s. Um, so the <laughs> it's... For me, being in Harlem um, was a cathartic, sort of mind-bending experience. It was, it it, it was humbling. Um, it was a very eye-opening for me to look at a place that I'd always heard of and to start to learn a, learn and love a city that was that I wanted to make my home. And there are some beautiful, brilliant things about Harlem that I, 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 that leave me speechless all the time. The architecture, the city, the people, the, the art, the history, there's so much that's there and I'm barely scratching the surface of it. Um, and, uh, I knew that I wanted, if I built something again, uh, which a, a course of my friends got together and sat me down and said, you need to build another restaurant. And, um, uh, one of those being the, the 
the name drop here, Tyler Florence, uh, who like literally slapped me into the, the idea of it. Uh, and, and some other really close friends all said, you know, this is really who you are, what you should be doing. And I, you know, <laughs> I think I had enough distance between the closure of Lafitte and now to get stupid enough to say, okay, I'll do it again. Um, and I, I, I decided that I wanted to do something excessively different than all the, and I don't want to call them failures, but the, the outcomes that weren't the outcomes I desired. I knew that I couldn't continue to repeat the same sins of the past and have an expectation that I was going to be all of a sudden, for some reason, successful. So it wasn't about let's break all the rules, but the necessity of having to change the business model, the, the approach, the dynamic, and get very logical and, and get very practical about what we do and how we do things and be efficient at all of it. Uh, and it, it's a lot of tremendous hard work and it's reprogramming. It had, it's, it's a daily process of reprogramming ourselves to do differently, better. And, um, and that starts at its core. Like, okay, we talk about the business model. The business model itself is, it's a 900 square foot efficient space. Um, it's built, the, re the restaurant was built around the idea of function over form. So it's a horseshoe diner that surrounds a kitchen and that you're essentially sitting in a professional kitchen. Uh, so in essence, every seat is a chef's seat, uh, which you go to other restaurants and you pay three times the amount of money to be able to sit at that seat. Well, for us, it's just practical. Uh, it allows us the ability to have more contact with the customer, uh, that direct interaction, and it allows us transparency. So they see, and, yeah. and there's no place to hide in that restaurant. I mean, there's no back room. There's, the only place you can go, go and cry is the bathroom. And we have that little sign that says in the bathroom, all employees must you know, <laughs> no finish crying, crying before, before. No, it says that they have to finish crying before they exit the bathroom. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I missed so, that. Oh, yeah. I'll look for it next it's, time. It's in there. So, oh, and there's, there, it's around in the other yeah. parts of the restaurant, too, because, you know, there's a lot of crying in my restaurant. So... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, young cooks yeah. <laughs> and um you know and, and the fact that to protect ourselves from the issues that i've had in the past like reservations platforms and uh inconsistencies and in diners and things like that so we had to mitigate all of that as much risk out of as possible so prepay uh uh defined seatings a rolling a rolling set we never take more than six people in any given 45 minutes um, that way we know we can pay as much attention as a client needs at the, at the precise times that, that they're dining and allows us to have that more intimate interaction with them. Um, it also, you know, that we're strict about our time enforcements that, you know, if you're five minutes late, we, we might frown at you. Uh, if you're 15 minutes late, I, it's in my hands as to whether I'm not, not I'm going to feed you. And if you're 20 minutes late, you're done. Uh, and it's, it's hard to turn people away when, you know, we cook for exactly the amount of people that we're going to cook for that night. So if we know we have, uh, and in that we have a binary choice when you go through the platform to place your 
Right. It's just like a movie ticket or a right. sporting event. It's reservations I'm, only. Right. You go. You go yeah. at. I'm a one. I'm two people at seven fifteen. Okay, great. We know that between seven fifteen and seven thirty, you're going to be sitting, and we and we know whether or not we've made it a binary choice as simple and easy as possible. I want a protein menu. I want a non-protein menu. Okay, and non-protein is vegetarian-centric. You know, a little egg, a little yeah. cheese, because most people don't know whether they're really vegetarian or not. And, of course, you know, like if you're a celiac, we're going to deal with you because we don't want to stick you with an EpiPen, uh, although it'll look really cool on video. Um, but that, we could segue into you have a no-technology policy. And I have a definitive no-technology <laughs> so policy. So there would not be of any video. Uh, well, just my own in, okay. in, in a camera, so... <laughs> But um, yeah, and the, yeah. the no technology policy, it, it, there's reasons for that. I mean, other you know, from the from the restaurant's point of view, it's uh, it, it allows us to continue to keep the pace. You know, when people have cameras out, it's a distraction. It slows service down. It takes people outside of what's in front of them, and it's respectful. You know, I grew up in a time where I sat down at a table and there were no cell phones. There were no, you know, and it's so discouraging to me to go out to dinner with a group of friends. And at this certain point in time, you're sitting at dinner and people are texting each other under the table. It's like, uh, you know, like I'm here now. It makes people present for sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and you miss so much when you're distracted by technology, by all of that other stuff. I mean, I don't mind somebody coming in, coming in. They're a single diner and they're sitting there reading. I, I'm all for that. Good to know. But <laughs> <laughs> I've been afraid to take out my phone for uh, sure. Well, a book <laughs> is a is that thing. You know, like if you pull out your book, but you know, we'll take a hammer to your phone. You know, yeah, it just yeah. it's 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 again, it's about efficiency and logic. It's about uh, etiquette. You know. Uh, and talk a bit about the menu, because it's California-inspired cuisine, right. so you're bringing your West Coast well, here. Okay, so, and this is always that thing, I think that when you say that, and we've had long discussions about this, in, in trying to describe what I do, and there's that thought that, um, and, and I'm getting fearful <laughs> that when you say Californian, people just have this thought that you're doing... California fair, but what is California fair? Say why I grew up in Los Angeles. I ate Japanese, French, Italian, a lot of Hispanic, a little Korean, you know, and it was all, it was all different parts of, of, of the spectrum. In Northern California, there's so much more Savoy, uh, a specific uh, sort of siloed techniques where if you have Italian, it's Ligurian Italian. If you have French, it's Provençal France. It's you know, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of expanse in what in techniques and styles, but the core foundation for those ideas are fresh, seasonal, seasonable, veritable, transparent. So for me, when I think of California cuisine, those are the sort of cornerstones that typify that idea, and that's what we represent to the table. It's 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 a more definitive statement than saying it's farm to table, you know, because everybody and their mother wants to use that, I, that, that stamp because it's a trendy idea. But how many people actually talk to the fucking farmer? I'm sorry, but it's okay. Uh, no, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like we talk, we talk to the farmer, the farmers deliver directly to us. They, they come and, you know, like the, uh, our, 
are we do a California trout dish because the rainbow trout is the state state fish of California. Uh, and I searched high and low for a company that existed within uh, that existed within New York that allowed me that opportunity to actually uh, use a product that was Californian but was local. So uh, we found Greenwalk Hatchery in Pennsylvania, in Bangor, Pennsylvania, and I ended up meeting the uh, the the husband uh, of the 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 fishery husband. Uh, I don't fish farmer. I don't know how to quite title him. I'll leave him. Uh, well, there's animal husbandry, so fish husband. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> Ty and his family. It's a small family, a small family organization, and they produce hands down the best fish the best trout I've ever had in my entire career. I know that when he shows up at my doorstep every Thursday, he brings me fish that's two to three hours out of the water. It's so stiff, I can't butcher it for two days. That fresh. Uh, And everybody that's eaten it has been just blown away about how delicate and beautiful it is. And that and we do this most simple, basic preparation to it. And that has everything to do with the quality of that product. And that's that amongst all, a, a tremendous amount of the products that we bring in are what we're dealing with. It's not the most expensive. It's not the cheapest by far. Um, but it is of great value. And I know that I can put the right amount of product on the plate and do it in an in a honorable way that represents that farmer and the work that we do. And that, you know, and again, I think that that's really, again, that, that, that core ideology of what California cuisine represents. I mean, you look at Jeremiah Tower and Alice Waters, and you know, those are all the, the ringleaders, Paul Bertoli. These are all people that, that right. led the process, led the way to, to define the culture, to define that art form. And we're paying homage to the work that they've done and that idea that they've put out there. And I can do that anywhere in the world as long, you know, it's like we use a lot of local products here, uh, but we still have a strong foot in that idealism of, of what it is to be California. Great. We're going to, we're going to take a break, but before we do, because I skipped over one of our breaks because we're the live show. I figured we could just talk a little longer, but before we take a break, I have a question from you for you from my last guest. Uh-oh. So on episode 236, I had on Jen Pelka. She is the founder and CEO of The Riddler, and she's also the founder of Magnum PR. And The Riddler has two locations, San Francisco and New York City, oh which my. is interesting. Oh, that's as, very interesting. You know, question for you. So her question is, first of all, congratulations from one operator to the other. And she wants to know, where should we all be eating in Harlem that we may not have heard of? Ooh, that's tough. That's Come on, really give us some tough. secrets. No, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a restaurant that, uh, uh, there's a couple of them. Uh, and one of them I'm, I'm going to have to give you after the break. But the, the first I would say is, is our neighbor, uh, The Edge. And... Um, uh, it's a, a couple of sisters that own this place and it's a great, great neighborhood restaurant. You know, it's like that place that you want to go on a Sunday and hang out and have, have great waffles and, or, or, and, or sometimes they do, they do fried chicken. They, they do a little bit of Jamaican, uh, uh, styled cuisine, which is really cool. Um, but I, I've eaten a ton of meals in there 
and have always walked out very happy. So, and the, and the, the, the owners are very honorable, very lovely people yeah. that are doing great work. I mean, you know, it's like, it's easy enough to call out like all the old school bastions like Melba's who I just met uh, last week, who's lovely person, uh, or Sylvia's or Londell's, yeah. which has been there for like 25 years, uh, which is a brilliantly amazing uh so much respect for those people and and because again i know what it is we all know what it is to have a restaurant that's been around for 25 years and you're still working at it that's that's so honorable it's so awesome to see i mean i hope to be that way myself so wonderful yeah the edge yeah cool Okay, we're going to take a little break here, and then we're going to come back and we'll play my speed round game and talk some industry news. I would like to give thanks to our sponsor for being here at Industry City. So Industry City is New York's hub for the innovative economy. A diverse mix of over 500 businesses call IC Home, collaborating across the 16-building campus, merging today's creative sectors like tech, content creation, and design with craft making and traditional manufacturing. The IC food scene is a rich yet approachable international experience for every palate. With five acres of outdoor space, more than 50 experiential food vendors and retailers, plus unrivaled tenant amenities. Industry City is a bustling hub where 8,000 people come to work daily and thousands stop by for a visit. Super excited to be here today hosting the show at Industry City. Thank you so much for having us. And for more information about IC, go to industrycity.com. This episode is brought to you by you. Heritage Radio Network makes your favorite food podcasts. And now we need you to lend your voice to our community and show your support of food radio. Become a member today. HRN releases 35 weekly shows each week and is a globally respected voice in food media. But believe it or not, we're still a very small grassroots organization. HRN is powered by a small but mighty staff of four people and HRN's incredible hosts who volunteer their time to bring you the best food podcasts out there. Our hosts are experts in their field, whether it's food writing, mixology, culinary history, craft beer, LGBTQ issues, and so much more. And they're committed to making sure that the stories that matter to you keep coming each week. We believe that a thoughtful, committed group can change the world. So join us. Add your voice and support HRN by making a donation of any amount. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Okay, welcome back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is chef and owner Russell Jackson of Reverence. And we are coming to you live from Industry City. And it is time for my speed round game. Are you ready, Russell? Oh, my God. You're always born ready. <laughs> born ready. So so what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such oh. as chocolate or vanilla. Oh, okay. You're going to be fine. Chocolate? <laughs> chocolate. Good. Oh, of course. Chocolate, good. for God's good. sakes. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I knew, you, I knew you, you'd get through this. Yeah. All right. Here we go. <laughs> eat in or eat out? Eat out. 
wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail, or champagne? Mocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Oh, my God. I got you on that one. <sighs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Small plates. Okay. Communal table or a chef's counter? Chef's counter. That one I figured was easy for you. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> you are a chef's counter. Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Cooking on TV, which we haven't really gotten to, or cooking in front of guests at your restaurant? Always cooking in front of guests in my restaurant. Cool. Skydiving or bungee jumping? Oh, skydiving, please. Tell us how many times you've gone skydiving. I'm, my count is so low. It's only 800. Yeah. It's so low. I should be, like a, I should be close to like 9,000 right now if I was on pace. I've got one. <laughs> I'm proud of my one. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan or Brooklyn or L.A. or San Francisco? <sighs> Manhattan. You say that with like such a no. Side. You know, it's like it's it, it's like I love Los Angeles. I love San Francisco. I I love Manhattan. I don't know why Brooklyn exists, but that's a oh whole come nother. on, we're in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I had to use a visa to get over here. So. <laughs> well, it's like if like it's like if I'm in San Francisco and you ask yeah. me to go to Berkeley, it's the same feeling. All right, all right. <laughs> Excellent. That was the game. All right. Thank God. It's over. <laughs> it's over. And now's, now's the second most fun part of the show. <laughs> we get to talk about industry news. Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah. Well, so, so I picked out this article on Eater New York, and mm. it's titled, The Complicated Problematic Influence of TripAdvisor Restaurant Reviews by Diana Hobel. And it says, the travel site is beloved and trusted by tourists, a fact some New York restaurants are exploiting however they can. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a big story really profiling TripAdvisor uh, restaurant reviews and how it was saying it's, it's used by tourists, not New Yorkers talking about in New York. It said 80% of unique visitors to its New York pages are coming from outside of the city. Um, it profiled a, uh, one restaurant group that does has a lot of reviews and does gets a, a lot of business through TripAdvisor. Um, it noted fake reviews on the site as a part of it. It also noted how TripAdvisor announced their uh, announced an official partnership with Michelin Guide. So there's going to be there's Michelin stars, Bib Gourmand, and plate rankings um, going to be added to these restaurant pages on TripAdvisor. Um, it had a lot. It was a very right. full article. Um, right. It's it a good was, read. And, and thank you for sending it to me. It, oh, it you're was welcome. a it was a very interesting read, especially in in light of where I'm at right now and and how, how I think how I've always seen. Um, uh, Reservation sites as well as uh, 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 gener user-generated um, um, reviews. Uh, it's, it, it, I think, once again, all of it <laughs> proves that the Internet is really just for porn. Uh, it, <laughs> did you just it, say that? It, yes, okay, I you did. did. It, it, it's, you know, it, <laughs> and this is the thing that's like we've created, we've so jumped the shark so long ago, all the incredible positive thing that, the internet could be, it's, it's sadly at, a, at its best, uh, an apocalyptic wasteland. 
of mind-numbing garbage, and that we're 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 constantly marketed to and th- thrown under this uh, you know constant stream of gobbledygook. It's it's incredible. I mean. It's the you know, first when you're time re- gobbledygook has been used at my show. <laughs> 237 I'm episodes. Trying in. my best not to curse like a sailor. It's a good one. <laughs> but, no, you know, it's like yeah. when you really think about how much real information and content do you really get out of your day in being attached to your phone? It's usually just stuff on top of more stuff on top of more stuff, and it, and very little of it really matters. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in technology when it's utilized in the right way. Uh, I'm I'm saddened by the place that it's gone to. Um, I think that there are a lot of people. I think that you know, even some food writers shouldn't necessarily be food writers because they're not. You know, and it's the same principle behind what Marco Pierre White said when he gave back his stars. It's like he truly did not believe that the inspectors had the the authority or the the uh validity to be judging him on any level of criteria because they didn't understand what he did and i think that we see time and time again reviews that are written by professionals that are just downright mean let alone um uh are 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 really representative of just being clickbait or 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 um don't get it. And, and part of that's because they're so, I mean, and, and not to rag on food writers, but uh, on professional food writers, but there's a lot of laziness that goes on. And I mean, you know, because we fight about this, that I, a lot of times I, I'm at that place where I used to take an interview at the drop of a hat. And, and I'm at the place now where I don't want to talk to too many people anymore because I don't see where they do, I don't see where they actually do a real professional job. I think that, um, I think that allowing people in general to have and voice their opinion is lovely. But the problem is, is that the people that actually, the, the, the common denominator is, it's not the rule, it's, it's the, it's not the, exception it's the rule that most people that will take the time to write something are just going to take the time to write something negative Uh, and and that's really that's really really tough and i think that the 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 story itself some of the pieces at least the two things that really stood out to me in that story one was that um there is there are a lot of restaurants that are co-opting the 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 system and utilizing it to their benefit and that's not that, that to me, that's like, it's a major sin. It's an incredibly large sin from as a restaurateur. I feel to to try to load your base based on 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 bullshit. You know. I was gonna. I wanted to. Since we're live here, we have an audience. I figured maybe we'd take a little poll of, because I I I use TripAdvisor when I travel. I'll look at hotels, kind of skim through a little to get a feel for it. Um, but I've never, I don't personally, I, I've never researched restaurants on TripAdvisor. So I thought, one, for our audience, um, how many of you use TripAdvisor? Oh. All right. For the listeners, that was... One. <laughs> one, sort of. One, a maybe, sort of, and me. <laughs> okay, so then, so then the, my second part of that is not 
we know the answer. You don't use it for restaurant reviews. Um, yeah, I thought it was, it's, it's interesting that it's a tourist website and they really do rely yes. on it for their restaurant reservations or right. information. Um, right. I wonder if anything will change with this partnership with Michelin. I don't know, but I, um, we will I think have to stay I think, tuned and you know, Michelin, see. Michelin, like all of them, they all have sort of, they're, they're all living in a new paradigm in dealing with the internet and how it affects their their core business. I, I think that um, Guy O'Guide, the, the, they all have this issue, especially when you're you're starting to deal with comments and user generated stuff. It, it it really sort of it takes sadly it takes a level of the validity validity out. You know, my staff's under orders that we don't read Yelp reviews. We could give two shits about it. Um, uh, I don't. We don't read. I don't read. I try desperately, if something's written about us and there's a comment section, I try desperately to not read it. Now, my wife, on the other hand, is a troll and will get up in people's asses really fast. I mean, I've watched, her, I've watched her go right down a, a rabbit hole uh, uh, arguing with people. And, like, and again, my wife, not just well-meaning, but is very intelligent and very fast and excessively brutal verbally uh, and will cut a bitch quick. So, um, I, you okay. know. Okay, well, no, you know. good to know. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, yeah. it, you know, every now and then you run, you run afoul of people that, that right. don't. And, and sadly, again, the, the, the dealing with internet trolls is... It's a sad part of our existence, and you can either contribute to it or you can you can just let them have their say and walk away from it. And I I'm a big believer in just walking away from all of it. I spent I spent way too much time and energy in the past in the past years having to defend myself over and over and over again to people that sadly just wanted to kick the snot out of me for 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 shits and giggles and didn't weren't really didn't have anything really to do. Like they either didn't eat my food didn't really watch or listen to what I was saying or, you know, I, I, I have enough to deal with in house in our restaurant. And because again, we're so different, we rub, we rub some people the wrong way in, in the respect that we are not your typical restaurant. Sadly, we're not your typical restaurant any longer. So it's, we have to fight with people about, you know, being an adult, (laughs) being, and being, uh, Proper, which doesn't always work out sometimes. On that note, now I am thrilled to let you all know about Host Summit and Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Now, this new conference is based on my show, All in the Industry, which you're listening to right now. And HOST stands for Hospitality, Operations, Services, and Technology. And we're bringing behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring hospitality leaders who pass guests on All in the Industry, and that's including Drew Nieporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobieni, Alice Chang, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gordonair. So our event is going to include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, 
We are having curated lunch conversations where it's going to be outstanding food and drink throughout the day. So I hope you will join us. To find out more and to get tickets, you can go to allintheindustry.com and you can also follow us on social media at All Industry. So that is um, coming up January 27th, 2020 in Brooklyn. Okay, we're back. I'm Sherry Bayer and it is time for my solo dining experience. So this week, I am flashing back to where I was dining about a month ago here at Hometown Barbecue Industry City. Here's the rundown. The location, 8730 5th Street, Sunset Park, Brooklyn, New York. The concept, specializing in authentic pit-smoked meats prepared in the classic southern technique of smoking on oak wood. The original location debuted in Red Hook in 2013. The pitmaster and owner partner, Billy Durney. So why did I go? Well, so I was out here because I have another client in Industry City, uh, or a client in Industry City, Gumption Coffee, and we had an event with the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, a special coffee cupping event, whereas coffee cupping is how they taste and score coffees, and it was a wonderful, wonderful afternoon, and but I got out of there with all this caffeine in me, and I was like, I need some food. So I came over here to Hometown Barbecue. It was late afternoon. Uh, the place was pretty bustling for about 4 o'clock, which is a kind of oddish time to be eating. Um, but my experience was great. I waited for about 10 minutes in line of what's, and deciding on what to get, and I saw this giant beef rib that I was debating getting. I'm thinking that's probably not meant for one solo person, but I was like, maybe I'll get that. But when I got to the front of the line, I found out this this rib was actually that one I was eyeing was the last one they had for the day. So um, I did not get that, uh, but I feel at this place you can't go wrong. So what did I get? I had the brisket sandwich on an onion roll with sticky sauce, pickles, and white onion, and I had a side of smoked pit beans with brisket burnt ends. My take, delicious, excellent. I really, I, I love the barbecue here. It's so good. Um, it, the meat was perfectly moist, full of flavor, uh, very sweet and savory. Um, I ate half the sandwich and took the rest to go. The ambiance, so it's it's uh, industrial, rustic, warehouse, large space, has communal tables in the front and the back. Uh, it was it was very busy, as I, I said, um, and when I was looking for a place to sit, I ended up at a table, a communal table, with some families and kids, and I was that solo diner kind of crashing the party, but it was really, it was fun. So I'd say it's perfect for a casual barbecue meal with friends. Interesting tidbit, Billy also owns Red Hook Tavern, and on my episode 223, I talked about my solo dining experience where I went there and I had their burger, and that burger has now been listed on a bunch of best best dishes of 2019 lists, including Pete Wells at the New York Times. So congratulations to Billy and Chef Allison Plummer and their team. Okay, personal fun fact. So Hometown Barbecue's managing partner, one of them, is Sean Feeney. He was, he's of Missy and Lilia. 
he was a guest also on my on my show. I did two, episode 223. And he is one of our speakers at Host Summit and Social. And uh, his panel is on Changing Neighborhoods, Changing Needs, Brooklyn and Beyond. Another personal fun fact. So down uh, for Thanksgiving, I was down in Miami, which is my hometown. And I did a drive-by of Hometown Barbecue's new Miami location. They're in Alapada, uh, which is near the design district. It's kind of an up-and-coming neighborhood. And I just checked out the spot. I didn't eat, but it was very cool, and it's exciting that they're down in Miami now. So the cost of my meal was $21. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, as we are here now. I can't wait to eat. And their website is hometownbarbecue.com. Yes. There you go. Tying everything together. But do they do takeout? I believe so. Awesome. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, food is delicious here. Okay, so it is time for the final question. Uh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> My next guest is Melissa Ben Isha. She is the founder of Baked by Melissa, and this is New York City's New York City's based brand famous for its handmade bite-sized cupcakes and macaroons. And also, we are having Baked by Melissa at my host conference. So, oh my. super excited. Um, so, Russell, what would you like to ask Melissa? Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Well, I wish <laughs> I had more time to think about this. Um, what? Oh, here we go. Even we though go. I'm not the meat guy any longer. I still have my affinity for bacon on a personal note, on a personal level. How does she feel about bacon in a macaroon? Oh, I will find out. Okay. Wondering how you, how do you feel about that? I personally feel that bacon should not be in everything. What about a cupcake? <laughs> Would you put oh, it? Oh hell like, yeah, in a cupcake. It's okay in a cupcake. Has to though? be in a cupcake. Okay. Yeah, cupcake, ice cream, cake. But candy. not a macaroon. But macaroon, All it's right. just this, this, it's sort of a clashing of worlds of rough and soft and like it, macaroon's supposed to be sweet and light and fluffy and delicious and bacon's all <laughs> bacon. So, you know. There you go. Good to know. <laughs> That's the show. <sighs> you, you made it. Okay. That was easy. <laughs> That was easy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's you know, I love talking to you and and I, you know, obviously have a an affinity for talking. So Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but we, we're wrapping we're wrapping it up. We're 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 only going over a little bit and uh, you shared a lot of a lot with us. So thank you. And I wish you much continued success. Thank and you. it's it's I been a pleasure people getting come to, to know reverence. you and working with you. Yeah, it's been awesome working with you. So, thank again, you. Come to reverence. Let me feed you. <laughs> so my guest today has been Russell Jackson. He's the chef and owner of Subculture Dining and of Reverence in Harlem, New York City. His website is reverence.nyc on social media at Chef R. Jackson and at Reverence NYC. And uh, you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is all in the industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com and allintheindustry.com. 
Thanks to Industry City for having us today. Thanks to Hometown Barbecue, and thanks to everyone at Heritage Radio Network and the whole crew. Thanks also to Marissa Ain, my event producer, who came out today. Uh, it's really, it's really been fun having a live audience and and being here. Also, thank you, Russell. Thank you. So my next live show is going to be on Wednesday, January 15th, 2020. This is my last show of 2019, hard to believe. So um, stay tuned. I'm still going to be at my Wednesday 4 o'clock time slot. And I wish everyone a uh, happy holidays and new year. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. I got to close the year out. That's awesome. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.